Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today, I have Elena Nadalinski and Craig Tim from Ironfish on the podcast. Ironfish is a layer one project building a ZKP-based privacy for many assets on Ethereum. They're a privacy chain. They have launched $30 million from Andreessen Horowitz and other investors. We talked about how they structure the company and the protocol. We talked about what privacy is technically, how it works. And then we talked about Tornado Cash and the $650 million hack from North Korea and the subsequent sanctions that were put on a protocol. So for the first time in history, there have been U.S. sanctions on a decentralized protocol, a piece of code. GitHub removed the project. We talked all about that. I mean, these guys are front and center. Craig has worked at the Department of Justice previous to this, so he understands what goes on behind the scenes. We even talked about Silk Road. And then obviously Elena knows everything there is to know on the front lines of building a privacy project. So fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Elena, Craig, I'm very excited to chat with you guys. So Ironfish, why don't we start there? Elena, this is your baby. You started this project initially. Do you want to give a brief oversight as to what the inspiration was when you first started the project and just the general scope of what you guys have accomplished so far? Yeah. So would it be helpful for me to kind of walk you through how I got into crypto because it does tie into Ironfish a little bit? Might sure. Be like major question, but sure. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So I got into crypto in 2017. So I live in San Francisco and San Francisco is quite an amazing city, primarily because whenever there's a new technology that kind of comes into the forefront. Everyone in the city talks about it. And so my introduction was actually going to a dinner and it was a dinner at Juan Bonet's house. Juan Bonet runs a company called Protocol Labs and they have a large project called Filecoin, if anyone's familiar with that. And this was, you know, much prior before any of that. And everyone was very excited because Ethereum, I think, reached to $30. And so, you know, kind of the entire space was kind of buzzing with the technology behind it, the potential and so on. And so... A few months later, the very first Ethereum-focused hackathon was announced called ETH Waterloo. And this was like the first Ethereum-sponsored hackathon that happened. And I decided to go. All I knew was IPFAS, which is a product that Protocol Labs developed. And I knew a little bit of Solidity. And so my project was decentralized video stream. There was two kind of things that were brought to my attention. One is blockchains are inherently transparent. You know... Any major blockchain that you can think of, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and many others, you know, they work on transparency. Validation works on transparency. 
So if I were to send you a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, every miner in the world has to see that transaction in order to validate it. And if a miner has to validate that, that my transaction of one Bitcoin is correct, they have to see my wallet and they have to see all prior transactions related to my wallet to make sure that I actually have that balance. So that was one surprising thing because, you know, even back then, like Etherscan did exist. Etherscan today is way more advanced than it was back in 2017. But even back then, you know, you can click on any on any wallet and look at all their transactions. The other thing that was surprising to me is, you know, doing decentralized computation is an extremely hard problem. So for instance, my project was decentralized video streaming. So the way I did it was you take a, you know, video file, you, you know, upload it to a, for that particular project was an AWS kind of node, but the, the transcoding, and then it would upload those chunks to IPFS. And so what I realized is that there, like Ethereum is not a decentralized computer, so to speak. It's kind of a different concept. Like you wouldn't do, you know, video streaming on Ethereum that doesn't quite make sense. So the problem that I was running into is how do you do decentralized compute? How do you, how do you have a system that proves a, like a certain computation was done correctly? And this problem in particular is addressed by something called zero-knowledge proofs. So I don't know if you know what zero-knowledge proofs are, but they are a very, very niche part of cryptography. It was first started in the 60s, sorry, in the 80s by uh, Shafiq Goldwasser and a few others. And it's this concept that you can prove honest computation, that I can do certain computation and I can give you the, the output of that, of that computation and give you a proof that the computation was done correctly without necessarily requiring, re requiring you to redo the computation yourself. So fast forward to today, you know, zero-knowledge proofs are actually a pretty large topic in crypto for both privacy and scalability. But the thing that I wanted to focus on particularly was privacy. You know, I, if you kind of work backwards and you assume that, you know, regard, regardless of what time horizon, crypto does become the dominant payment structure, the lack of privacy to me is kind of a bizarre feature. It's like, I don't think most people understand how transparent the system is. And so for me, whoever unlocks this privacy for crypto, you know, that is a huge, huge potential. And so I found a pause here, but that was, that was like the start of, of Iron Fish and, and how that idea evolved. Yeah. At that time, did you feel that privacy was a, a strong concern from the people working and building these early layer one, layer two protocols, or was it not yet on the forefront of people's minds? It depends on who you ask. It was very, very binary. So roughly that time, like, like 2018, I got to know Zuko, who was working on something called Zcash, which is one of the older privacy coin projects. And, you know, obviously, if you ask people who are, are already working on privacy, they think it's a very important problem. Like, of course, how are we going to build up like a payments financial system with this level of transparency, it just doesn't make any sense. But when we raised our seed round, we actually did get pushback from investors of why are you working on this? Nobody cares about privacy. DeFi is happening and it's exploding without privacy. Why are you not focusing on that? Why are you trying to focus on privacy? So it really depends on who you ask. And to this day, like we do get people who say, I have nothing to hide. I don't need privacy. It's cool that you're working on this, but I don't think this is a big issue. And then we do have other people who are pretty shocked when they find out how transparent crypto is <laughs> and what, like, what are some of the implications of what that would mean for them if they were to use crypto on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it seems like the use cases to me would be pretty obvious and very motivating for people if they understood 
just simply that if somebody had access to your public Bitcoin address, and that is, you know, public, it's what you send to people when they should pay you, then they have access to every person that you've ever, every address that you've ever transacted with and how much money you have in your address. So if you went to a store and, and bought something using any public blockchain, that store is going to know everyone that you've transacted with. So it only takes an intelligent layer on top to kind of organize and say, okay, this is, you know, these seven houses in this city have collectively, you know, all the Bitcoin. And so it's like, I could imagine all sorts of little activity that starts to happen, or even just in a more minor way, just oversight and collective data aggregation across different merchants or people that want to better understand their customers. It's like, you don't, you know, just in the same way that Facebook now gets a lot of hate because of their data aggregation practices that led to effectively incentivized through their business model. The same thing I would suspect starts to happen here if given enough time and enough people actually using the currencies. <laughs> is that generally the approach that you take when trying to explain why this is such a big problem? Or is there certain examples you tend to give to communicate why it's so important? Yeah. So one example that popped to mind is actually Craig. So during the interview process, I actually shared a story. So I'll kind of pass on the mic to you. Sure. About like what made him realize privacy plus crypto is an important topic. <laughs> Yeah, so my background is as a prosecutor. I spent many years with the Department of Justice and for the last several years was in traditional finance in, in Bank of America. So my, my first exposure to crypto was back in the Silk Road days. And so my immediate association was crypto bad, right? It's dark web, that's what it's for. And it sort of stayed that way for a number of years. Yeah, I started to get more interested in 2017. And then with NFTs, I really started to, to see the potential. And so started to get more involved, got my own wallet, started to do some things. But I was definitely in that camp of people who did not appreciate how transparent it really is. And so, you know, fast forward to late last year or early this year, actually, when Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And and I, I donated a, a very small amount of money in my, you know, my wallet to for their fund to raise money for defensive equipment for, for Ukrainian fighters. And almost immediately, I get a scam NFT airdrop back. And I think that was my like light bulb moment, right? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know for sure if it was a scam, but almost certainly it is, right? Like, and, and so one, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, right? This transparency is probably leading to a lot of crime, right? Because criminals will target their crimes to you. And so now they know that I have sympathy for Ukraine and now they're targeting their scheme to me. Right. So one, that's leading to a lot of, of, of probably the crime that does exist today. And then two, if the scammers can see it, the Russian government can almost certainly see it, too. And 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 that I'm, I'm rewinding and thinking about when I bought my first NFT and I post on social media and now my pseudonymous wallet is not so pseudonymous anymore because it links up to my real name. And, you know, me and thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of others are probably on a list somewhere in Russia. Right. And that that's scary stuff. So. You know, it, it, I, I think there's a number of reasons why privacy is important. But what I, I didn't expect coming from a sort of crime fighting world was that the lack of privacy is bad for crime and is bad for national security. And that if we had more privacy, we'd actually prevent a lot of crime that's occurring today. And it'd be much, much better for national security, aside from all the fundamental human rights, freedom of speech, all those things that it, it facilitates. It, it was really sort of the light bulb moment for me. And then when I heard about what Elena was trying to do, 
and and bring a privacy project forward, but one that also recognizes there's a balance of interests, right? It, it, it's never anything at all costs. And so could we figure out a way with this project where we can bring more privacy to the community, but but also at the same time, find a way that we're not abused by North Korean hackers or terrorists. You know, we don't want to be a part of that. I think if, if we can solve that as a crypto community, much less Ironfish, that's when we really unlock the potential that I think is there. Yeah. And what years were you at the Department of Justice? So I was at the Department of Justice from 2008 until early 2016, and then at Bank of America from 2016 until earlier this year. So was that, was crypto on the minds of people in the 2014, 15, 16 timeframe, or is it still pretty early? So it, it was on the minds of people because that's right about the Silk Road time, right? I can't remember when that mm. happened, 2013, 2014. And I was working at headquarters in charge of, of the money laundering section of the Department of Justice. And so we worked with offices all over the country. And so it was certainly on our radar. It, it was it was very sort of, you know, very small back then. I, I am certain I didn't appreciate the cryptography, right? There were a lot of what digital currencies at that time that were coming out that were being used by criminals. And so I remember getting my first briefing from the FBI probably sometime in that 2013, 2014 time period, very focused on the negative, right? The use cases there, I, I, I don't have data to support this, but the information we were getting was, was largely dark web criminal use. And so focused on it, but not intently because it's still, you know, th there wasn't a lot of liquidity there for, for criminals to move money, you know, just like anybody else. You know, if you're moving you know, modern money, you need liquidity to do it. And so back at that time, there just, there wasn't a lot. So it was very niche at that point, but it was definitely on the radar. Mm. How big a project internally within the government do you think, or did you see the Silk Road, just call it project, the endeavor? Was it like multiple years involving tens of people or what was the general scale? I, I would imagine that it took quite a bit of work to be able to track, track, track the guy down or anyone else at the yeah, subsequent so, track down. Yeah. So, so I wasn't involved directly, but as I understand it, there were, you know, several agents from several different agencies, you know, a couple of prosecutors. I, I think it was just about that time where the Department of Justice was forming a, a crypto task force. Katie Hahn, who many in this audience will know, helped to sort of lead that. So it was, you know, an emerging threat, I think at that point is what the, the, how the Department of Justice would have thought about it. I mean, obviously now they appreciate it as much more. There's actually a lot of people in government who are very sophisticated when it comes to, to crypto and the benefits and the good things now. But back then it was certainly focused more on the negative. But, but Silk Road would have had several agents working on it. It would have taken several years. The nature of those kind of things are, they just take a while, you know, undercover operations, you know, all those, those types of things that that's not unusual. And, and it was run out of the, the, U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, which is one of the elite offices in the country. So really, you know, top-notch folks are working on it. Yeah. Crazy story, huh? <laughs> so would that have been possible had Ironfish or other subsequent privacy, you know, hypothetically, if Silk Road was built today using a zero-knowledge proof underlying protocol, would it be even possible for people to trace the creators or, or people who have access, like, or is that going to be an inevitable pathway? Like, I, I'm not aware of any place now where you can exchange anything you want, but I would imagine that there's a market for it. Clearly, Silk Road existed and all sorts of illegal things were traded there. Technically, is it 
does anything exist now or is it possible or what, what generally holds back people from recreating that? Or is it just fear of the repeating history? I guess I'll, I don't know, whoever feels most interested in that, maybe Clay right. or so, Elena. Yeah. yeah. Go oh, ahead. Okay, cool. I'll go first, but I actually yeah. want to really want to hear your answer too. So twofold kind of question or answer. So one is I'm not aware of dark markets that are in operation today. I'm sure there are some. So Zcash actually did fund kind of research and investigation into dark markets today. This was a few years ago. And what kind of cryptocurrencies do they use? And even though we have Monero, Zcash, and we have a lot of privacy solutions, their findings were that vast, vast majority were still using Bitcoin and Litecoin because liquidity matters more to them than anything else. So that was kind of a surprising thing. The other answer that I want to kind of give is, you know, kind of what Craig mentioned earlier, you know, compliance and privacy don't have to be at odds. Like there are ways of building systems that protect the user by making things private, but also have controls and kind of, you know, guidelines and, and built-in technology that would, you know, that would open up an account to be a, you know, authenticated person. So for IronFitch in particular, you know, if every wallet has a view key and the person that has the view key can see all the contents of that wallet. So for instance, if an exchange or an individual is being audited or, you know, if you would need to provide, you know, your wallet for any reason, there is a way for you to do so. So that's kind of one thing. But I actually do really want to hear Craig's answer as well. <laughs> and, and yeah. So so short answer is, is yes, absolutely. If, if they were using, you know, cryptocurrency with zero knowledge proofs, you could still catch criminals. Criminals have used cash forever, right? And, and you know, cash is, is sort of the same way. You know, if you think about cash as fiat currencies layer one, right? It, it's it's private. And for a lot of good reasons, right? That privacy is really important. And we can we can talk more about that. But then controls are built on top of that, right? So so if you think about, you know, just like, you know, anyone else, you know, you want to put cash somewhere where it's safe, right? A lot of people will want to do that with cryptocurrency, right? It, it can be dangerous to try to hold too much yourself, right? So you've got regulated on-ramps and off-ramps, right? Criminals want to be able to use their money. They want to be able to use it in all sorts of different ways. And so they're going to be going to exchanges and otherwise. And so there's, there's lots of opportunities because there's privacy in a base layer, you know, which, which has all these societal benefits and otherwise, there's plenty of ways to layer controls on top of that, you know, in the crypto sense through bridges and otherwise, you know, looking for, you know, past bad actors. And then on top of that, a lot of these things come down to good old fashioned, you know, law enforcement investigative work, you know, really good investigators doing good work. And go back to Silk Road, you know, a lot of their evidence was undercover, right? They're, they were posing as users and, and that's the best evidence, right? So, so I think, I, I think that is a narrative out there, right? That, and one that, that we're working to counter that, look, privacy just facilitates crime. And, and, and we, what we want to try to share is that actually private, the, the lack of privacy causes a lot of crime. And, and that when there's privacy, you know, there are still ways to catch criminals and, and it's, it's really a, a balancing of the cost benefit in terms of all of the things we're using, the lack of adoption, all the things Elena talked about earlier, but absolutely, you know, you could, if Silk Road were using a privacy, you could absolutely still catch them and do all the things they did. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's true if people are, I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on domestic versus international. So obviously crypto being just international by default <clears throat> and the Department of Justice, the FBI, every other, you know, three letter acronym department in the United States is really concerned about 
ultimately the United States citizens, the United States federal bank account, like collecting taxes, there's probably not too many things they're concerned about. But if it's something happening to another person of another citizenship in another place, it's out of out of out of the jurisdiction. Crypto is so international. People move and travel all the time. These companies are often not even companies. They're just protocols. Do you see there being any kind of like organizational pursuit of criminals across multiple countries or how is it handled now? And is this something that's top of mind in in just the general pursuit? Because when it used to be just bank robbers, like you're you're not going to hop on a plane and leave with your cash, but now it's it's so much. You know, you might have seven different people in seven different countries, all traveling and difficult to pin down. And ultimately, like the rubber meets the road when I'm in person, right? There's only so much you can. There's only so much you can do if you're not actually in person. To like the the moment with the Silk Road was like they're in the library. They got the guy with the laptop. Like it was the physical interaction in which the executive force really exemplifies their might. And I, I, I just wonder about how the dynamic is changing now that everything's international. Yes, yeah, so the, the dynamic in crypto really isn't different than organized crime in general, which is mm-hmm. international, right? And so if you look at the way criminals move their money, even if they want to, it starts in the US and they want to bring it back to the US, they route the money all around the world, right? They, they, ha- they establish these things called shell companies, which are companies in name only. They don't really exist. They're just a shell. And so they'll move it to a shell company in Dubai and a shell company in Hong Kong. Both jurisdictions may not share information with the US. So even if there are KYC records, the FBI is not going to get them anyways. And so, so absolutely the international nature of crime is a challenge. There's a lot more partnership um, from law enforcement across borders than there used to be. But that challenge is is no different. In fact, it's a bigger challenge just given its scale in traditional fiat type crime than it is in crypto. But it, it, it's 100% a challenge everywhere. Yeah. And it almost seems like there's a temptation to go too far with it, right? Like every the everything's a, a pendulum swing where I could see some international police force set up that, you know, has, and this is people's worry and, and probably part of your motivation in starting this, this privacy network is there can be a temptation for the government to just keep climbing deeper and deeper into the personal lives of people all across the world, right? What Edward Snowden came out with, and then everyone is kind of at a fork, like, is Edward Snowden a traitor or a hero? And it's an interesting question to just pose because why did he do what he did? It seems like it was for good reasons. The, the government can certainly make mistakes. And I do believe in the concept of whistleblower, but it's like, it, it's, it's still up for grabs, right? He's still living in, I think, Russia and still hasn't been given asylum. So it's like, there's just, there's just very topical conversations, maybe shifting a little bit, Elena. So you guys, you saw this opportunity after working on the project, the video streaming project, and then privacy became something you wanted to focus on as opposed to scaling. Was the implementation, at least in your mind at the time, pretty, not simple, but was it clear to you seeing zero knowledge proof, seeing Zcash? Did you have a a pathway that was in your mind distinguished enough from what Zcash Monero were doing, but also at the same time, interesting enough? Or like, where, how do you view that niche that you were going after initially? Yeah. So our intent has always been to provide a privacy solution for crypto. Our path was fairly nonlinear. <laughs> so the first, I would say, six months was all about research. So we learned about Monero. And at the time, there was a project called Grin, which was, there was a lot of hype about it. 
And when it launched, unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't quite pan out. Zcash, obviously, you know, the way my, my forcing function to learn things is to sign myself up for talks. And so one of my earlier talks was on zero knowledge proofs. And so as a forcing function, you know, I spoke to some of the founding scientists of, of zero knowledge proofs and the, and the Zcash team as well to kind of understand how this technology worked. So from all that research, the conclusion was that the best privacy was the one that was supported by zero knowledge proofs. Not all privacy solutions actually use zero knowledge proofs. Monero, for instance, uses a different uh, privacy mechanism. And our, you know, we kind of bootstrapped Ironfish to use Sapling, which is Zcash's privacy mechanism. And right now we're working on basically expanding the protocol to have something like like a multi-asset support and, you know, potentially different features as well. So it is evolving. And when I say like our path is not linear, we actually started the entire code base in Rust, which is kind of a little known fact, <laughs> at least to some people today. And we made a pretty drastic switch to TypeScript. So Ironfish is open sourced. Anyone can look at it now. Anyone can actually run it. We have a testnet running, so you can participate, uh, participate, participate in the Ironfish testnet as well. And the majority of code base is in TypeScript, which is a very typical language choice for a layer one implementation. And so our kind of vision has evolved from, you know, building a better privacy coin to building a privacy solution for other crypto assets. And so right now our efforts are, you know, how do we expand Ironfish to have multi-asset support so Ironfish can recognize the concept of other assets? The second layer is how do we build bridges? So how do we build bridges from Ironfish to Ethereum or Ironfish to Nier or Ironfish to Solana or, you know, any other kind of chain? So that existing crypto holders, if you have an asset on top of Ethereum and you want the benefit of privacy, you could actually transfer that asset from something like Ethereum to Ironfish and now have the full benefit of privacy. That's kind of like our, you know, next goal. And then for privacy in particular, like the holy grail, is privacy plus programmability. You know, how do we have the richness of DeFi or, you know, something with programmability, but also have the benefit of privacy. And so kind of our third effort, which, you know, I'll be very transparent, it's very, very much down the line. There's a lot of things that are going to take priority over this in the short term is how do we support a layer two that does have programmability? So we're looking into layer two CKVMs. And so the Southern protocol that we kind of started off is, is you know, we're evolving it to our needs to have a platform that is, it's still a layer one, but think of it more of a privacy platform for all crypto assets that we bridge to and in the future have the ability to have programmability as well. Hmm, okay. A couple questions on that, but I want to ask you the just general size of the project so far or company project, I'm not sure how you label it, but it raised about 30 million in venture capital. Is that right? Or what's the Yeah, project? so... Yeah, that's pretty close. So we raised our seed round for five million by Electric Capital, or there was the lead, and then we closed our Series A with Andreessen, and that was twenty-seven. Yeah. And where did that money go? Was it did it go into the private company building the token, or like how, how did you structure the organization? So Ironfish is, you know, a C-Corp and <laughs> it's actually fairly standard structure. And we could have an entire podcast on corporate structures in the crypto world because there are quite a few of them for many, many different reasons. Right now, Ironfish is a pretty vanilla, you know, C-Corp. And so the money went, is going into developing the protocol itself. So our, our kind of target right now is to hire the best talent and actually drive this thing to fruition. So that's kind of where the, the, the funds are going to. 
If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. So money going into developing the protocol itself, meaning money went into the C Corp in exchange for equity in in the Correct, C Corp. Yeah. Got it. And is the idea that the end value of the C Corp would be sold someday? Or I would imagine that what you're building is not owned by the C Corp in that it's a protocol? Yeah. So there are many other layer one companies that are pretty great examples of how this is done. I mean, Serena Foundation is kind of one example, even though it's atypical in a lot of other ways. But mostly layer one teams or companies, the way they launch their protocol is when they when they launch mainnet, the first block is called the Genesis block. And the Genesis block usually has some preset amount that either goes to the company, the foundation, sometimes combination of the two, sometimes none of that. So it really depends on how the, the company structures it or how the team structures it. So for us currently, you know, the Genesis block would go into the company the company has plans to do future grants, R&D operations, you know, future fires, maintaining the ecosystem, building new features. You know, we're, we're not thinking of, you know, that us launching the, the, the protocol is like us kind of, you know, stopping our efforts. So, so yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but yeah, so, yeah. Works. so basically you're saying that the, the C Corporation created the Genesis block, allocating itself to be the owner of... What twenty percent of the initial token, some some percentage, and then investors will look at the investment as, "Hey, I own thirty percent of a C corporation that then in turn owns twenty percent of the tokens of this project." And so, effectively, they're tracing value to what are the tokens going to be worth, and tokens might account for, you know, ninety nine percent of the value of the C corp. So. Is that the general like mechanics of, of how it flows? I find it interesting because like you said, there are so many different configurations. Yeah. So we're, you know, exact numbers are not published yet. We're still actually working on that. Um, mm. So I can't really commit to any of those numbers. But most teams, like if you look at any other layer one project, you know, they're pretty explicit into how the funds are being allocated and how they're being uh, distributed. You know, we plan to do something similar in terms of being that transparent in terms of 
how the donuts to block funds can uh, get allocated. But yeah, at the time, I can't like I can't say that those numbers are correct because we those are just not finalized yet. But yeah, Jerusalem been fairly, very like transparent with our community. We actually have uh, an incentivized test net that, are, that is currently running with the expectation that for eligible eligible participants, we're able to distribute some of those coins to them as well. And has has the Genesis block been issued yet? So Ironfish is still in testnet. Uh, okay. It's not mainnet yet. So the answer is no, but you can participate in the testnet today. <laughs> and <laughs> we definitely want we're testers. <laughs> and do you, did you have to, are you still in negotiations with Andreessen on how much of the, how much of the Genesis block, does that involve investors or is it just kind of like, do you have to, like say for instance, you were to just decide you're the corporation is going to take 1% of the tokens that are issued on the Genesis block. Is that something that has to be approved internally with investors or can you just decide that? I would imagine that that would be part of the deal. So I'm just trying to understand general patterns to these structures because that, that deal was like almost a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I would think it's unlikely, maybe we're in such a boom cycle, they're like, hey, just figure it out later. But I, typically from my experience raising, all of that is explicitly defined up front. I was just curious the the structure of it. Obviously, not the specific terms, but no, it was definitely defined up front. So I can't like you know, crypto is a growing new industry, and so there are different formats for how people raise money. And the industry, for better or worse, has experimented with different instruments for how to raise money. Some of those instruments are no longer applicable for various reasons. Some strategies that were you know tried and true like in twenty seventeen are no longer applicable today. So, you know, what we did at the time was actually atypical. Now it's fairly standard, which is, you know, in a normal startup, when you raise from investors, you would inflate your, you know, the Thunberg shares the company has to introduce that new investor. And if you raise a subsequent round, you do this process again. And so for us, we did the exact same thing and we kept it pretty clean. So we are going to keep a one-to-one ratio. So if you have 1% of the company, you have 1% of the genesis at, you know, at time of launch. So this format is now fairly standard and believe it or not, the format was not standard in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Typically I would think it's, it's, it's capital going straight from investors to the tokens. Like they have a pre-sale. So they're actually selling the tokens to investors using the power of the LLC that owns the distribution of the Genesis block as kind of the medium for exchange, so to speak. But it did, it did always seem kind of cloudy to me because it's like, you know, how do you, how do you effectively, you're like bargaining for pre-sale tokens of a project that is being created by a private company. And then the the private company itself dissolves into nothing is generally the, the goal of the projects. Uh, so yeah, fun, fun egg to crack. And, and how you structured it, is this the typical approach that companies will take now is they'll start a C corp and then aim to dissolve that in the future? Again, I can't speak for all com- all companies. And again, it's like a pretty evolving space. Yeah. So, you know, like in 2017, SAFs were pretty popular. Mm. And SAFs did somewhat of what you just described, which is like to price a token ahead of time. People very quickly figured out that that was not a good idea for various reasons. You know, we specifically never mentioned tokens. You know, we work with investors that understand the space extremely well. They understand the project extremely well. Those are investors are crypto investors. We wanted to make sure that, you know, we have investors that know exactly what they're getting themselves into. And yeah, I mean, the process that I described is somewhat typical, but the space is also evolving. Like we're seeing 
a lot fewer L1s coming on. And we're seeing a lot more DeFi protocols, some layer twos. So this, you know, obviously your company structure or how you issue tokens or shares or, or whatnot is very tied to what your product is. You know, yeah. if you're a DeFi protocol, you might have a totally different structure than a layer one or a layer two. And so it's, you know, it, it, it honestly is a case by case basis, depending on how your protocol is set up, what your project is doing, what your future plans are. You know, you were talking about dissolving the company in the future. Some teams plan on doing that still. Some plans do not plan on doing that. Some plans, uh, some teams kind of are focusing on supporting the foundation so the company in the future. Some teams do not plan to do that. Some teams only have a foundation. Some teams only have a company. Some teams have both. So, you know, some teams have a DAO. Some teams have the community and, you know, full anarchy. So it really is like a, a huge spectrum of how the team decides to structure their governance model in the future. So it is pretty hard to say like what the standard is. Yeah, <laughs> It is fairly evolving, but we are definitely as an industry, at least in the U.S. in particular, are definitely moving away from pricing tokens and kind of having this model that was popular in like 2017 era of, you know, investors get a premium on like a pre-sale of tokens. We're definitely not doing that as an industry anymore, for sure. Mm. Let's talk about things that are more more recent. So not specifically with Ironfish, but today, for instance, is the Ethereum merge, I think in like five hours or something, yeah. some relatively yeah. new time. Celsius and Luna went through major collapses uh, a few months ago. What are other mm -hmm. things that you feel are either going to happen soon or have happened soon that are very relevant and are actively shaping the crypto world? Does any particular stories or things that you guys have stayed particularly attuned to given your space? So one thing in particular that, you know, I really, you know, I, I'm sure that Craig has a lot to say about is Tornado Cash. So I can kind of set the stage a little bit and then, you know, hopefully Craig can add some more color. So Tornado Cash was, and I, I guess still is to some degree, a privacy protocol on top of Ethereum. So what it allowed you to do is, you know, it was labeled kind of as a mixer where people can put funds into the protocol and then withdraw them to a different address, for instance, with the attempt to break linkability between like one wallet that put the money in versus the wallet that took the money out. And so unfortunately, it was used mostly, not mostly, but there was a quite, you know, quite a large volume of activity that was used by hackers. So if, you know, if a hacker, for instance, stole money from a protocol, you know, they would use Tornado Cash to try to obfuscate that line of, you know, funds. And so OFAC, or the U.S. Treasury Department, actually sanctioned Tornado Cash Ethereum addresses, which was... Very surprising and precedent in, uh, in a lot of ways because this was the first time that they sanctioned code, yeah. not a personal entity, which was very shocking and strange for a lot of reasons. You know, code cannot defend itself versus an entity or person can. Code can mean a lot of things. And so the crypto community kind of as a whole, you know, it, it was a Pandora's box of questions. Is it illegal for me to write cryptography code? Am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get arrested if I write cryptography code, right? Am I responsible if my open source library is being used for nefarious reasons? Tornado Cash is code, but it was deplatformed on GitHub because the sanctioned language was very vague. It said, we're going to sanction Tornado Cash, but Tornado Cash is just code. And so GitHub deplatformed the entire project. So then we had a lot of questions about, wait a minute, isn't code equal to free speech? Why is that happening? Non-privacy crypto projects also had, you know, a lot of questions. Is it, is it our responsibility? Is it the responsibility of the protocol 
to have these extensive measures to make sure that bad activity is not happening in my protocol. To what extent do I need to monitor this activity? You know, is this, this is, you know, this is a lot. <laughs> like, like if you were started trying to like launch your DeFi protocol, all of a sudden I have to care so deeply about what is going on in my protocol and like, what does that mean for monitoring in my side? So I'll kind of pause here because I think Craig has a, you know, a ton more to say about this, but this has definitely been top of mind for us because Tornado Cash, despite its flaws, was a privacy coin, sorry, a privacy protocol. And obviously here at Ironfish, we're trying to build a privacy layer for crypto. So I can tell, you know, I can talk in a lot of ways of how we are different from Tornado Cash and the compliance kind of perspective. But at the end of the day, you know, it's definitely a top of mind thing for, you know, for, for basically everyone in crypto right now, even people that are not working the privacy world directly. Yeah. Wow. Craig, <laughs> you, what's going on? That's crazy. Sanction. I mean, typically, in addition to people, OFAC would sanction countries. So there is kind of a precedent for kind of a collective. But what do you think of this? Well, so, so there's absolutely is a precedent. So the, the, the laws that OFAC operates under allow them to sanction foreign persons or entities. And so that can include countries and it can include the property of those people. U.S. people can't be subject to sanctions. They can be told what to do, but they're, they can't be sanctioned. So, and we've seen it in the context of mixers before. So, so a couple of months before Tornado Cash, Blender IO was sanctioned and, and that didn't raise a lot of eyebrows. I, I mean, the, the sanctioning of it and whether that was the right thing to do or not, but from a, a sort of legal standpoint, Blender was a more centralized group, right? It, it might not have been a, a legal entity, but it was a, it was an organization of, of you know, people that, that were clearly not code, right? And so the sanctions were on that organization. And so didn't really get a huge amount of attention in either the mainstream media or, or I think within, within crypto. What, what's different here? is is the sanctioning of the code and, and it's sanctioning of code that you know there were i think something like 40 addresses give or take sanctioned and, and the majority of them i think even vast majority of them were were code in addresses without an admin key so so they could not be changed or controlled by anyone if they wanted to and so that that was really striking because the whole purpose of ofac sanctions are to change behavior they're not punishment like that's the department of justice those are criminal laws you know, so North Korea is sanctioned with the goal of having them give up their nuclear weapons program, right? Like if they do that, you know, you sort of sanction a country, you establish a goal, and then if they act consistently with that, the sanctions are removed. That happens all the time for both people and countries. And so here, you know, when you have code that can't be changed or controlled, it, it sort of raises a question of, well, well, what, how is, how does that fit with the goal, right? It, it actually can't, changed. So, so a lot of legal questions, right? What does that mean? You know, is it authorized under the statute? Does it create other constitutional issues, right? You know, there, there's a line of case law that says code of speech, but there's also another line that said, you know, deploying code can be action and, and, and can be. But I think in terms of, you know, sort of, and unfortunately, there's still a lot of questions out there. We got some guidance from the Treasury Department just yesterday. And the first thing they said since their press release, where they said for U.S. citizens out there whose money is currently stuck in Tornado Cash, because if you're a U.S. person, you cannot use it now. And it's against the law to use Tornado Cash. And so there were some people who just have their money stuck. They did say that you can apply with them for a license to get your money back. Um, so long as you can prove that it wasn't nefarious, it wasn't North Korean money. There was a lot of dusting that went on. I don't know if you saw this, but but sort of post-sanctioning, people sent very small amounts of money through Tornado Cash to famous people. So Jimmy Fallon, Elon Musk, you know, 
And that transaction is technically illegal, you know, sort of, I I think, you know, not for a nefarious purpose, but to sort of point out, like, how do you do this with code that can't be changed, right? And so they said that that's okay. Look, that's not maybe a technical violation of the law, but we're not going to worry about that. But they did reiterate that for U.S. people, it is still illegal to use Tornado Cash. And I think, you know, so a lot of that will be dealt with in the courts, right? Like there are already challenges to it. Coinbase on behalf of several of their employees uh, has already filed a lawsuit challenging it. There'll, there'll be others. So, so that'll get sorted out. But I think in terms of, you know, what can we learn from it in the interim? You know, the estimates that I've seen from TRM Labs and Chainalysis and otherwise is that somewhere, you know, in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% of the activity going through Tornado Cash was identified as being bad. So so clearly from a U.S. government perspective, that was too much, right? Like they that that made them willing to take that action. So right or wrong, like we've got to know that it's community, right? Like, and, and I don't think anybody wants their protocol to have 30 to 40% of, of criminal activity, right? That, that, that's a failure. So we've got to figure out going forward, how do we get that number down, right? And, and part of it is through controls, which we can talk a little bit about how we think we might do that, but, but also it, it's, it's raising the denominator of good users that use this, right? It, it's helping, you know, there are a lot of good people that use this service because of all the transparency issues we said. So one lesson is we, we've got to learn from that. That's, that's too much in the U.S. government's view. That's too much. And so if that happens again, they're gonna, I think you can assume they're going to take action again. And they were willing to take some legal risk on their end you know, to, in order to do that. The second thing was they said that despite what Tornado Cash said about their controls, they weren't put in place. So I don't think we know anything about what that means, but, but they weren't satisfied that Tornado Pest was doing what they said they were going to be doing. And so, so that, you know, I, I think it, it's really, you know, it's been an awakening to the community in a number of ways. One, you know, just the, the sort of, you know, potential assault on code and open source software and, and the need to really defend that. But I think also really thinking through, getting back to our conversation from earlier, it's sort of, you know, it's this age old balancing of privacy versus security that goes back, you know, to the beginning of time. Right. And how do we get that balance right? How do we get it right to where we can have maximum privacy, you know, but not be abused to that extent by by North Koreans and people that nobody wants? And I think that's been an interesting discussion in the community since then. And I think will be really interesting to follow as as us and others try to sort of figure that out that months and years going forward. Two things I want to dig into. One, technically, can anybody stop Tornado from running? I mean, are they, yeah, they they sent a letter to GitHub saying we're going to come to your office with guns, right, in theory, if you don't take this down. So they took it down. There's other places you can host it. Like, is this technically possible to stop? Or is it just the threatening of the law to, to do it? Elena, maybe I'll oh. point that to you. Yeah. Sure. Craig was about to answer something as well, so I want to hear that answer as well. But so I'm so, jump into the GitHub thing, but go first on the Okay, yeah. Um so yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone went in with guns to GitHub, but well, the threat oh, is oh, there, oh. right? Like that's why they took it down is right, you're gonna you're like if you don't, what happens? Well, we're gonna come to your house and we're gonna come to your office. Like that's the end that's the ultimate reason they do it is Well Right. I mean, if I were to send them an email to say, hey, take it down, guys, they're not going to take it down no matter how much I ask. Yeah. So so sanctions, this is where this is this is one of the challenges sanctions. So they are an area of the law that's called strict liability. And, And it means that you can violate sanctions even if you don't know you're doing it right. If you happen to later violate it, 
you don't you usually you know to violate the law you have to have you know criminal mm-hmm. intent you got to want to do it you got to be reckless sanctions is different and so what you've seen i think in the wake of tornado cash and the lack of guidance you know even the guidance that came out from the US treasury department didn't address you know really some of these side issues you saw people being ultra conservative right with you know not wanting to get close because they know even if they're acting in good faith you know, I'm sure the people you know, thought that the code they were publishing on their website was protected by free speech, but but they didn't want to take a chance because the U.S. Treasury Department didn't tell them. So, so I, I think in, in some of these cases, you see the repercussions of sanctions being this sort of you know, you know, very strict application of them, and then also people just not wanting to touch the line. And so, when you don't get the guidance from from the government in terms of what it means, you actually see a lot of over compliance, over cautiousness. And I think that's a lot of what you saw happening with with GitHub and, and others. Mm, OK, and, but technically the, the, the code can still run. People can still use it just the same as they could a few weeks ago. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. So, yeah, so Ethereum is an immutable ledger, um, especially if you launch a smart contract the way they did with no admin keys. It is immutable in nature, which means it will run on Ethereum forever. It will exist on Ethereum forever. Right. So technically, from a very technical perspective, it is there forever. Now, logistically, because of U.S. sanctions, like crypto right now is like a multi-layered you know, kind of industry. So for instance, if you want to interact with Ethereum today, you're probably not going to run an Ethereum full node in order to do so. You're probably going to, you know, use a third-party service. If you use MetaMask, which is a popular Ethereum wallet, you're going to be using something called Infura, which is a third-party service that runs that full node for you that your wallet can talk to. Infura is a, I believe is a U.S. company, or if they, they are, if they're not, they're still complying with sanctions. But the alternative to Infura is Alchemy, which is kind of their competitor, which is not kind of, kind of like overtaking the, the space in terms of being this like full node service provider. They're definitely a U.S. company. They're definitely complying with U.S. sanctions. So from a very logistical perspective, because there are so many U.S. companies that are kind of propping up crypto as a, as a usable product, because of those sanctions, it's logistically would be very, very difficult for you as an individual to interact with Chain No Cash today. So it's kind of a weird answer of like, technically, yes, it will live on there forever because that is how blockchain is constructed. But, you know, it comes at a cost of convenience. You have all these tools that are U.S. companies that are, that do not support the protocol. So logistically, kind of no. But wouldn't there be, yeah. I, I would imagine that the U.S. is still relatively, I mean, we're a significant player in the global space, but still there's, you know, many, many other countries that play in crypto. Is there not one that, I mean, if, if you, if no other country has sanctioned Tornado Cash, I would imagine people are using Tornado Cash like crazy other places. Is that not the case? Like, is it just kind of a monopoly of Tornado Cash providers in the U.S.? Yeah, again, it's it's like the tooling around it. So I haven't looked at Tornado Cash volume in, in, in a while, but, you know, days after sanctions, like people posted graphs in terms of usage or liquidity or volume or et cetera, and it definitely dropped down. 
So there was, you know, practically very, very little activity happening in Tornado Cash. So the result is, you know, yes, like for better or worse, U.S. actually has a ton of sway mm. in the crypto world because a lot of companies still are being produced in the United States that actually prop up the entire industry. And then the other thing I want to ask is where is this coming from? Are there so many hacks that there's just a ton of cash and hackers just are like flowing 40% of the network's volume with all of their successful hacks? Or like, are these, would you suspect that the vast majority of the money flowing through is like lower level crime, like people stealing gift cards from places under a hundred dollars? Or are these like, Hey, I yeah. just, like, uh, I, where is all this coming from that's, go, that's running through the tornado network? That's a great question. So the the article, or I don't know, the official kind of statement that OFAC did when they, when they did the sanctions explained it quite well. So they pointed out to a few hacks that were fairly big in magnitude in terms of like the volume that was directly tied to Korea. So one of them was the Ronin hack. So Ronin was a company, a uh, gaming company. And through a pretty elaborate hack, they were able to extract something like 600 million from the protocol, roughly. I don't know the exact numbers, but you can look up yeah. the, the sanctions article. The other article, oh, sorry, the other half that they mentioned was Nomad, which to me was a bit surprising because Nomad hack happened days before the sanctions thing happened. So it kind of like, you know, they're definitely paying attention to the crypto world in a pretty, pretty like acute way. And so that was, that pack was like 160, 170 million. I remember exactly, but somewhere in that, in that ballpark. Obviously not all those funds uh, from Nomad, at least no, not all those funds were, you know, that went to North Korea, but basically like Gary was a very transparent chain. So we can actually see where the funds that resulted from those hacks are going to. And the Ronin hack in particular, that was very much directly tied to North Korea. And so the magnitudes were just pretty sad. Like in the, in, the, in the article itself, they mentioned, and again, like, yeah, please check my numbers, but, you know, North Korea, because of sanctions, isn't able to get like less than $100 million uh, into the country each year. And because of these hacks, they were able to launder close to a billion dollars for the tornado cash. So, Damn. you know, the ratios are pretty, pretty drastic. And so even though, you know, OFAC might have acted too quickly, they might have done things that were incorrect. They might have done things that they didn't actually understand the ramifications of. But to them, they were directly protecting, you know, national security. You know, from their perspective, it's like we're trying to keep our U.S. citizens safe and we're trying to make sure that North Korea doesn't deploy nuclear weapons if, you know, this, this protocol is allowing them to get money, which might potentially contribute to that. So they acted, you know, in my opinion, very fast. But, you know, at, at the end of all this, like, we could have certain feelings about quotas, free speech, and whatnot. But one person asked me, do you agree with the intent of the Treasury Department? And the answer is yes. I actually do agree with the intent, even though I may not agree with, the, with how they executed and of their their actions. Yeah, Craig, what do you think's going on over there? Do you feel like it's just papers flying? People are like, we got to do something. Banging desks, like, ban them. We can't ban them. Ban them. We're going to ban this protocol. And then it's just like, all right, PR team, put out the news. Like, it must be, I mean, if you, like to Elena's point, if there is a hack and two days later, they're doing, launching some unprecedented sanction, it must be kind of chaos over there, right? Like, yeah, well, I, you know, I think the I think the the two days, yeah, that that one was probably a late add on. Right? Yeah, they, they don't act that quickly. What what really was the game changer was the Ronin. Yeah, and I think that took it in the minds of the U.S. government from 
you know, these are criminals, these are bad people using mixers to this is a national security threat. You know, Elaine and I and our team had a chance to meet with a, a former senior Treasury Department official just last week. It wasn't involved in this, isn't in office anymore. But she told us, like, she used to wake up at night frequently with nightmares, you know, because she was uh, dreaming about an attack against the United States. Like, this happened often. And so this, this is the stress these people are under, right? They're in a zero fail game. And so I think what Elena was saying was really important. Like, and it's important for us as an industry, when we think about how to advocate and who's on the other side of the table that we're talking to, right? These, these are smart people. There are people who don't always understand the technology perfectly, but they're, they're trying to, and many of them actually do. And they're coming, like they go to work every day to protect us, right? That's their job. And that's what they're trying to do. And so do they get everything right? You know, not always. Do they, do they understand, you know, everything about, you know, the importance of, of privacy and these technologies? Probably not yet. But I think there's an opportunity to, to educate us. And, and we just have to recognize that, that that changes everything when it's a threat to the government. When they're imagining North Korea building a nuclear bomb and deploying it against U.S. citizens someday, yeah. like they're, they're going to act. And so I think, yes, it's chaos. Yes, it's all of those things, you know, because they, they can't fail, right? That, that's what they're dealing with. And so what it, 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 yeah, it's then incumbent on us to sit down with them and explain it to them, right? Help them learn, you know, be factual with, you know, where's the technology today? Where are we going? And hopefully we can change the discussion, you know, because part of the challenge with crypto in general is you're, you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole in terms of how things have traditionally been done. But the advantage of crypto is that we can use technology to solve problems in ways that are better, faster, cheaper than before, both in terms of how we move money, but I think also in terms of how we fight financial crime. And so I hope that's another, you know, it's hard to say positives coming out of these things, but that, you know, I think you're going to start to see a lot more open discussion in Washington between the industry, between, you know, privacy focused teams and the government to figure out, okay, how do we get this right? What do, what do we do? And so I think, mm -hmm. you know, that if, if there are ours, like, you know, a good side of it, that that's it. My take on this is that for what it's worth is that there's an over labeling or over indexing of, of moralities on this. So you frequently hear like good, bad be thrown around, good person, bad person, good country, bad person, bad country. And I think that even just the idea of like a hacker, like as a hacker, even if they have all the intent to steal something from a company, they're providing a value. I mean, there's, there's there, like, imagine a world where you walk around and no bacteria try to get into your system. Like you have no need for an immune system. Like you, you have a, there's something just so deeply fundamental to the concept of like investing in defense, investing in security, whether it's your body and your immune system or whether it's a protocol and it's security, like hackers serve a, a purpose in the world. And we don't like when they win, you know, no one wants to die from a disease in the same way that no protocol owner wants to get hacked and take their money away. But I do think that if you like really distill it down, there is a value that hackers provide to the world and that they, they provide the resistance to people to build up the strength of the protocol that then develops the technology to help it propagate further. Of course, you know, we root for teams, right? We're on the, we're on the, we're on the good team. And then the other guys are the bad team. And, you know, they, they may even have that same label. They're like, you know, we're going around, we're trying to steal money, but they have their own story of what they're trying to do. And not that I'm necessarily defending them, but I, I try to, I try to like pull away from the good, bad, because I think that that's the, 
that's the ultimate driver in the whole thing. Like if you run it upstream far enough, it's like, well, why is nuclear, why is North Korea really trying to build bombs to blow other people up? It's like, well, they think we're bad people and we think they're bad people and we black them out. And it's like, that's, that's ultimate. Like we can, there's always going to be this debate, like you say, the security versus safety or freedom. And I think it's like, how do you dissolve the momentum that's coming downstream? Which is, I, I almost think of it as like, it's just a, it's just an unfolding process of of decentralization that's happening that will never fit. Like this round peg will never fit in the round hole. And I, I view it as the tension growing between the centralized powers, particularly of the United States, with the decentralized protocols. Like these things are just going to keep happening and people are going to start to have to make a decision. Like, are you on team USD or team BDC? And it, it, sh- it start, I think this starts to shake the whole structure of the world, frankly, at least in the Western world. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think this is a larger, much, this, my bet is that this is the first sprinkling of like a massive monsoon for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Like, oh, remember when tornado cash was the first one Would they, the USD try <laughs> to shut down? That's my yeah, take. So I, get, I get what you're saying in terms of like, you know, some stories are multi-facts, like multi is fractured in terms of like you can't just binary put things and say good and bad. There are certain things that are definitely bad. There are certain things that are definitely good. So for instance, if you were to ask me like, is child trafficking bad? I would say, yes, there's no, <laughs> there's no like on the way to look at it, it is bad. So I, I you know, I, I get where you're coming from in terms of like, you know, certain things have different different perspectives, but there are certain things that, you know, for I in particular, like I want to make sure that we don't support in any way, you know, or, 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 or fashion. So like child pornography, you know, we're going to do our best to make sure that we provide privacy for the people that need it. And we make sure that bad actors, we know are bad, but, you know, by this very strong definition, don't have access to it. Obviously, it's a pretty hard problem. And like we were saying earlier, it's hard to kind of, you know, actually do it in practice. But, you know, there are certain things like where the line should not, should not be well, crossed. In my just my quick reaction to that, and maybe Craig, feel free yeah. to chime in. It's like, if somebody designs, you know, say they're the designer of a, a computer, say a, a, a thing like a knife, right? They design a, a, the most beautiful knife and that knife circulates the world. Like everyone uses it to cook or do whatever they cut down trees. And then somebody uses it to murder a bunch of people. It's like, yeah. I don't know that there's any responsibility necessarily on the knife maker for that mm-hmm. action of the other person. You can, you can recognize the distance from the, the level of abstraction from that. Like if I'm building a you know, a remote for a TV and someone uses yeah. that remote. Like the the degree of separation varies. Like if you're manufacturing oh. bazookas, like, and someone uses it to blow up a building. Yeah, that's closely aligned to the intent of the product. But in your case, it's like, you're kind of just offering this up in the world, like a math, you know, that's the beauty of IC protocols is here's the open source project world, use it how you will. And if you don't do it, somebody else will in some other part of the world. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. The other thing I, I just say is that the, I don't, the U.S. government is not, you know, a monolith too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of different parts of it who have a lot of different feelings, right? And and they sort of range, right? There's some that, you know, uh, probably feel like you said, right? And then want to just shut this all down. There are others who, who are you know, very pro this innovation and really see the potential. And so, you know, I, I think that's important to remember, right? There, there are different people with different views. 
and arguments to be made. And ultimately, you know, the, the Congress is going to decide, right, that the U.S. government certainly could have taken more drastic steps to this point, but they wanted to kill crypto, right? But yeah. there's enough people in government that they think this could be big and they want the U.S. to be involved in it if it is. And so I think, I think you've got to take that as your starting point, right? Like, I don't think many of them are viewing it as an us versus them. This is the sort of line in the sand. And so I think it's incumbent on us to just continue to educate so that they can see the good, see the bad. You're never going to convince everybody. But I think you have over the last couple of years seen more and more members of Congress. I think if you look at the Treasury Department, OFAC sister agency, FinCET, mm. they actually put out some really good stuff. They've made very clear that privacy protocols you know, don't need to be, they are legal. So, so from their perspectives, like a, you know, but if you put out privacy software that is legal, that's not against the law. They don't think they need to regulate it, right? They understand decentralization. So I think, I think it's, there's, there's just the, the U S government is really complicated, right? It's a complicated place with a lot of agencies and a lot of people and the views run the gamut. And so I think, you know, because you hear somebody on TV express some views that you don't like, that, that not everybody and maybe you're not going to get them, but I think there are definitely people willing to listen. And I think that's the majority of people, at least that I've found, in, whether it's a Treasury Department, Department of Justice or Congress, you know, most people are willing to listen and haven't fully made their mind up yet. Yeah, sounds about right to me. I appreciate you guys going long on this conversation. Very, very interesting stuff. Super topical. And I'm excited to see how it actually plays out. It reminds me there was one example that obama gave one time where he said that he was in charge of guantanamo bay where they had i think about 35 prisoners that were locked up at the time and they knew a few of them committed some pretty terrible crimes and yet they're all locked up and somebody asked obama like what are you going to do and he said well what do you want do you want to live in a world where we lock up 32 out of the 35 people unjustly for the rest of their lives or do you want to live in a world where they go free and then there's just people out there that are potentially able to commit terrible crimes? And it's kind of like that's like back to your point, right? It's like that's the that's the relationship of the problem. It's like how free do we want to be? What are the externalities of freedom? And you know, then the other side of the, the other side of the equation of locking everything down, banning everything, you know, shutting it all down. Exciting stuff. I think. Yeah. I think most people are against torturing normal citizens. Remove the torturing aspect. Say just locking someone up. Say locking up 32 out of 35 people. I mean, in a way that is a different type of torture, I would argue. Yeah. But so, you, you're, so, so, I think, so you're on the side of letting everyone go if they don't know who it is. No, no I know. So I think those are the two extremes. Yeah. I think extremes are almost always bad. And I think the right solution is most typically somewhere in the middle. And privacy is not any different. We've seen Tornado Cash take the really extreme approach of anyone can use a protocol, no controls, no guards in place. Like you just go in and out with no with no protection. We kind of saw the ramifications of that. Bad activity happened and it got shut down. That is like an extreme approach, right? The other extreme approach is full transparency, which I think is bad in other ways. And so the solution is somewhere in the middle, which is like, how do we have privacy with some controls? so that normal people can use it. They can protect their wallets. You know, most phishing attacks actually happen because they know the contents of your wallet. They know exactly how to attack you, how to approach you, how to do social engineering, because they know exactly the contents of your wallet. So in a lot of ways, privacy does protect. And so the solution is somewhere in the middle. So, you know, for that Guantanamo Bay thing, like 
the solution is probably somewhere in the middle. Like the two extremes are not a solution in my opinion. Yeah. So I don't know. I remember what the last topic of this was, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moderation is always a path. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find really fascinating talking about with the government because the, the government regulations and the decisions that they make are so indicative of the trajectory of the world, particularly in the US, right? They've set so many of the trends like ban on psychedelics in the 80s and the world hasn't done any research on psychedelics for 40 years. And then it's like, start, start off the internet on a good swing, like legal, regulate after production. And that worked out well. And it seems like that's the trajectory so far in crypto, but it's the stories being written. Guys, where are you online? Elena, Craig, Elena, first to you. Are you writing on Twitter, blogging anywhere personally? Yeah, so I don't write as much as I should, but my Twitter is Lean the Bean. Love it. And then Ironfish Crypto is our Ironfish cool. Crypto Twitter account. Cool. And Craig, how about you? Yeah, I'm on, on Twitter, Craig M. Tim, T-I-M-M. And then also on LinkedIn, which I think is an underutilized resource for us in crypto because that's where the decision makers sit, right? Like we get in our bubbles sometimes on crypto Twitter and it's great. And then I'm learning a lot as I'm new to space, but but the ability to influence is over there too. So I definitely encourage people to, to get in that space, start some of these same discussions on that side, because you've got law enforcement, you've got government, you've got people at the treasury department, you've got people in the financial institutions, a lot of people who may not be on, on crypto Twitter. And I think we really need to take an yes and approach mm -hmm. to where we're having these discussions and who we're talking to. Yeah, good one. Yeah. I kind of want to end the note by a note of positivity. You know, I think a lot of people on all sides, government, crypto, et cetera, have a really optimistic view on this. And so we're trying to figure out how to move forward in a positive way. And, you know, I'm honestly very grateful how far the crypto industry was allowed to go up until this point. Like, uh, you know, uh, Christian Carlo, who was former CFTC chairman, you know, he kind of makes this point that whatever money wins is money that's more technologically advanced. Like if you look through like historically what money or what currency was the world reserve currency. And I think to some too, in a lot of ways, you know, crypto is a more technologically advanced type of payment system. And the most popular denomination of a stable coin is the dollar. And so I think like that's a pretty great sign for how, you know, we shouldn't be at odds of like, you know, us versus them, like us versus the government. To Craig's point throughout this entire podcast is that you know, there's so many great people on both sides that are actually collaboratively trying to make this work. And so, I don't know, I just want to end on a note of positivity that there's a lot of good happening yeah. in space too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody, or at least you can, you can abstract it out to every group has intentions that they believe are, again, I'm not using the word good and bad, but are, are the intentions are such that they would propel society towards a future that is preferable to an alternative. And and I think people just disagree with both the pathway there and then the specific implementation of the future that is preferable. And like conversations are where you figure that out. So to Craig, to your point, and it's like, thank you guys for having this conversation. I hope you guys have more too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, now. All right. No, really, what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We Mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, And recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod.